Soft as it began by Rubbersoul O.T. Chapter 3 Hermione can understand why she had once loved Ron Weasley. He has a sort of ethereal youth about him, a naive glow that somehow managed to escape the war unscathed. He's awkward and lanky in a way that's enduring, like he's not really aware of it, or if he is, he doesn't care. Despite how he could, at times, drive her up the wall, he was always sweet to her, always helpful in the ways he knew how. His freckles and lopsided grin are handsome, and the rusty auburn colour of his hair seems to have grown with him. She had once thought that his orange hair might look strange on him as an adult, despite seeing all of the other Weasley men with theirs and thinking no such thing. But she thinks now that it was because that's all she'd ever known of Ron, a boy too young to be fighting in a war. He's a man now, and although their relationship hadn't worked out, she can understand why Ron had been easy to love. Two minutes ago, while helping her pack her trunk, he had accidentally opened the small compartment that she'd packed her knickers in. She had stifled a laugh, watching from afar as his cheeks blossomed a deep pink, blue eyes widening in terror as he quickly shut it again, shaking his head and murmuring something to himself under his breath. He had immediately asked Ginny to trade with him, opting to shrink some of Hermione's books with a Juscio charm instead. Some things never change, she had thought, wishing Harry were here to laugh about Ron's awkwardness around her underthings, despite the fact that he had once been the one to take them off her. I'm still wondering if we'll have to obliviate Ron once you leave. There's no way he'll keep his giant gob shut about this, Ginny says as she places a perfectly folded knitted jumper into the trunk. Hermione hands her the next one, the one Molly had knitted her last Christmas with a large H on the front. Ron frowns, his lips pulling down at each corner in a way Hermione had once deemed impressive. His knack for morphing his face to look as put off as humanly possible was another of his qualities, that both irked and brought her joy from time to time. I'm not going to tell anyone, you loony, Ron argues, elbowing Ginny in the ribs as he turns to place a few of the shrunken books in the trunk. I wanted to find Harry just as much as you do. I wouldn't do anything to jeopardise it. Hermione had thought long and hard about whether to tell Ron and Ginny that she might have found Harry. She had made it very clear to Madge that she wanted as few people as possible to know, and that was still true, but not telling Ron and Ginny felt like betrayal. They had both been through the same things that she had, and they had a right to know that there was a possibility that Harry was alive, just as they needed to know that Hermione was going off to do. If something happened to her along the way, and she never told them. Ultimately, she ended up telling Madge that she would be disclosing the information to Ron and Ginny, promising that they would be the last two to know, that it was possible that they could help if Hermione got desperate. They both knew Harry just as well, maybe even better than Hermione, and should she need help from someone other than Malfoy, they would be the best people to go to. When she sat down to tell Ginny what she'd found, the redhead had gone silent. Her lips had parted to inhale a short breath. Her eyelashes had fluttered in her effort to keep her composure. Hermione could tell that Ginny did not want to get her hopes up, but there was something else there, edged on her surprise. A conflicted feeling, evident in Ginny's faraway eyes and the silence that came after the conversation. Ginny was never one to be introspective. She usually spoke her feelings as she processed them. Never one to hold back her things. Or what she'd said or felt or her opinions on them as they came to her. The reason behind Ginny's silence had been loud and clear to Hermione. 
She couldn't imagine losing someone you had once been in love with and then knowing there was a possibility they might return to you. Ginny loved Blaze and he had talked often about the future she saw with him. But Hermione knows that the love her friend once had for Harry had never gone away, just softened with time, like colours fading from an old canvas. It's easier to be in love with two people at once when one of them is gone. The promise of Harry's return meant digging up what had long been buried, preserved and examining how it might fit into the life she'd built now. Ron, on the other hand, had perceived the news as Hermione had poured a pepper-up potion down his throat. He had leapt to his feet, a wide grin on his face, insisting that he pack his things so he could go with her. It had taken a lot of persistence on her part to convince him that it was better he stay here, that George needed him at the joke shop, and that the two of them being gone on a secretive mission would raise a lot of suspicions. Eventually, he had agreed that despite how badly he wanted to join her, it was best that he stayed behind. He'd taken hold of Hermione's chin, a wild, bliss look in his eye, and grinned at her before saying, When you find him, give him a sloppy wet kiss on the lips. Full on snog him. And tell him it's from me. She'd burst into giggles, thinking about it. But telling him that Malfoy would be the one accompanying her on the journey had quickly turned his enthusiasm to disdain. How do you know he's not going to try and murder you? He had frowned, following Hermione from the living room to the kitchen as she tried to escape a string of complaints. Malfoy is not going to murder me, you dolt, she had snorted, filling up the kettle with water for tea. If anything, I'll be sent to Mungo's for losing my mind while being cooped up with him. Ron still hasn't exactly warmed up to the idea, despite Ginny insisting that Malfoy had actually turned into a half-decent person, and that Hermione's aversion to him was verging on excessively dramatic. Last one, thank Merlin, Ron sighs the final book shrinking in the air and landing with a soft thump on the floor. Have you ever just considered living in a library, Hermione? Hermione chuckles, picking up the tiny books and placing them into her packed trunk. When I was little, it was on my Christmas list three years in a row, she replies, skimming her eyes over the contents of her trunk. I think that's everything. Bloody better be, Ron mumbles under his breath, his knees cracking as he pushes himself off the floor to stand. Ginny shoots her brother a warning look, but Ron just shrugs, scratching the back of his neck as he looks around Hermione's bedroom to make sure they haven't missed anything. Tea? she asks the siblings, raising an eyebrow. She doesn't wait for a reply before making her way down the hall and into the main room of her flat. Crookshanks, who had been banished from the bedroom for pouncing on Ron's sock-clad toes, mews excitedly when Hermione enters the kitchen. Luna Lovegood would be taking care of Crookshanks while Hermione was gone. Money had explained that she would be gone for a work trip for an indefinite amount of time and had no idea how long until she'd be back. Luna had only smiled, a knowing twinkle in her eye, and told Hermione she'd keep Crookshanks as long as she needed her to, on account of the fact that she seemed to be good at scaring away the Nargles. How is Blaze feeling about Malfoy being away for so long? Hermione asked Ginny as she boils the kettle, pulling out a tin of ginger biscuits her mum had given her the last time she'd visited. Ginny sits in a chair at the small dining table, examining a copy of the Howler Herald from a few weeks ago. There's an article in the sports section about her leading the Harpies to victory this year, and Hermione had kept it to put away as a keepsake. Ron, who has already shoved an entire ginger biscuit in his mouth, dusty crumbs falling from his lips, grabs a second copy of the Howler, one from the previous week, and opens it to the page with a crossword puzzle on it apparently intent on blocking out any talk of Malfoy and the upcoming trip. 
Blaze thinks it'll be good for Malfoy to get away for a while, Ginny replies, pushing the newspaper away from her and resting her chin in her hands. I guess he hasn't been out of England or that much since the war. Really? Doesn't he have a fancy vacation home in the south of France? He didn't want to sip fire whisky by the poolside with an enslaved house elf rubbing his feet. Ginny gives Hermione a slightly reprimanding look, lifting a brow as she corners of her mouth rise upwards. The Malfoys have a home in Provence, yes, but I guess his mum insisted they stay away, and she's intent on cleaning it out to sell. Hermione makes a soft grunting noise of acknowledgement, placing a few bags of tea into her favourite tea box. The closer she gets to leaving, the more thinking she has been doing about the fact that she would be living alone with Malfoy for the foreseeable future. She knows hardly anything about him, other than what she'd known in school, and she expects that whatever accommodations Madge has set up for the two of them won't be anything near the luxury he's used to. There isn't much that makes Hermione nervous, but being confined to a space with Draco Malfoy and working alongside him on a case more important to her than anything she's ever done is enough to warrant a significant amount of jitters. Not only was he permanently grumpy, but he always seemed to insist that he was right about everything. He liked to glare at Hermione when she expressed her opinion, and acted as if he'd had a headache on the way to every time she opened her mouth. He kept to himself a lot, she noticed, and seemed to like it that way. He was friendly towards a small group of people in the office, Madge, Dean, Riley, and generally only tolerant of everyone else. Hermione knows nothing personal about him, other than the fact that he drinks a black coffee every morning, and that he doesn't like to be bothered when he's working. In fact, if he was interrupted while writing, his glare would turn dangerous, and his lips would turn down into an intimidating sneer that was a near-exact copy of his father's. He seemed to only really enjoy the company of Blaze, and he was amenable to Ginny's presence, probably out of necessity at first, but he seemed to have grown more comfortable around her when they had played pool together the other night. According to Ginny, there was always a sort of wall around him that no one but Blaze seemed to be able to penetrate. You'll probably both be so busy tracking Harry down that you won't even remember you hate each other, Ginny suggests, blowing softly on the steaming mug of tea Hermione places in front of her. Working with Malfoy is like trying to scrape dog poo off of your shoe, Hermione retorts, giving Ron his tea and sliding the sugar bowl towards him. He gives her an appreciative, albeit distracted, nod, his focus steadfast on the crossword puzzle. Even if you manage to get most of it off, it lingers, and even when you're finally rid of it, it still manages to ruin your day. What's a five-letter word for a water-dilling parasite? Ron asks suddenly, a small dimple in his furrowed brow, his eyes attached to the crossword. Leech, Hermione and Jimmy reply in unison. Ron sucks his teeth, nodding in realisation as he fills in the empty boxes with the answer. Hermione raises a brow at Ginny as if to say, exactly, and Ginny rolls her eyes. I think I may have woken up in an alternative universe, Hermione says, sipping her own tea as she watches Ron carry on with his puzzle. She wants to enjoy the last time she'll see her best friends before she goes away, because she really will miss them. Why is that? Well, Ronald is doing a crossword puzzle for fun, and I'm going to be stranded alone in a house in the woods with Draco Malfoy. Ginny shrugs. The world works in mysterious ways. What's an eight-letter word for a sudden great misfortune? Disaster. He shows up late, but then so does Madge, so she can't even call him out for it. 
The door that leads into the staircase swings open with its usual creak, and Hermione lifts her head at the same time that Dean does to watch the two of them walk in together. His eyes meet hers right away, apprehension and a bit of something else she can't decipher. His robes swing at his sides as he walks, long legs slowing to match Madge's smaller stride, and a muscle bulges in his tense jaw. Part of her is giddy that he's feeling uncomfortable about this as she is, that at the same time she has to suffer through his company. So too does he have to suffer through hers. His eyes flick down towards his shoes, and Hermione realises that she's been watching him for a bit longer than was appropriate, too caught up in her own thoughts to notice. Hermione, Madge greets her as they arrive in the centre of the office where she and Jean stand waiting. I trust you're well rested. Hardly. She'd barely slept a wink last night, her twisted around in her sheets, trying to shove away thoughts about sharing a bathroom with Malfoy and waking up with her usual mess of bedhead, only to have to face him in the kitchen for a cup of tea. Of course, she smiles, nodding and greeting at Malfoy. He only blinks back pulling the messenger bag at his side, higher up on his shoulder. Dean, thanks again for stepping up, Madge continues, reaching a large palm out to shake Dean's hand. Dean smiles warmly, a dimple deep in his cheek. My pleasure, Madge. I've been watching Hermione get herself into trouble for years now, so I'm well prepared for the job. Madge cracks a grin, stepping back so that the four of them form a circle before pulling two small velvet drawstring bags from the inner pockets of his robes and handing one each to Hermione and Draco. These are your port keys. They will take you back to the house any time, anywhere, so keep them on you at all times. The Ministry has authorised the creation of whatever other port keys you may need to your various locations. Keep a log of them just to be safe. If somehow this all goes wrong, I'd like to have the proper documentation to avoid getting sued more than I need to. Dean'll be your middleman. He's going to be in the office, same as usual, nine to five on the weekdays. He has agreed to continue communications on the weekends. This is for emergencies only. If you're going to be stupid and do something dangerous, save it for the weekday. Only the four of us know the location of this house, which we'll call headquarters. It's an abandoned house in a remote location in Poland. This location is pretty central to the three cases we have documented with Potter's alias. The walls will only allow Hermione, Dean, Draco and myself to enter. They'll need to be recast every weekend for maximum strength. Dean will send a supply of food, toiletries and any other necessities every two weeks. If you need something else, let him know, otherwise you'll wait another two weeks. The house has a small store for potions and potion ingredients should they be needed. Again, document the ones you use. You will report directly to me, should you not go as planned. Not Dean. Me. I trust the two of you to use your best judgement, but I'm going to send in orders if I think it's getting out of hand. No one needs to die or end up in Azkaban just to fetch Potter. Merlin knows you're both too talented for me to lose you. I'd like for you to send me a sample of what you write at the end of each week. Doesn't have to be more than a paragraph, but I'd like to know what there is the still story to this trip. I don't value ratings over Potter's life, or anyone's for that matter, but the Howler isn't paying for a trip that the Aura Department could be paying for. Right? Stay safe. Have each other's backs. Don't get killed. Got it? Madge, winded and looking like he was a worried father about to send his kids on a school trip, 
tilts his chin down to look at both Hermione and Malfoy over the rounded rims of his glasses. His eyebrows are raised expectantly, and he rests his hands on his hips in a way that Molly Weasley would have been proud of. Yes, sir, Hermione replies, giving Madge what she hopes is a confident and reassuring smile. Madge looks over at Draco next, waiting. Draco looks at him, then at Hermione, as if to question why he might have ever said yes to this, but turns back to Madge to give him a firm nod. Good lad. Madge skirts around Dean, grabbing a small square box wrapped in brown paper and twine, and hands it to Draco. For the both of you, a little something to take edge off when you need it. Draco looks down at the box, blonde fringe falling over his eyes. Thanks, Madge, Malfoy says, tucking the box under his arm. He glances at Hermione again, jaw working, and then over at Dean, nodding at him in lieu of a thank you. Right, that sounds it, I suppose. Madge looks between Hermione and Draco, making sure they each still have the small baggie with their port key. She's slightly relieved that he has at least given them each their own. She can't imagine not being able to be separated from Malfoy at all, and she might have liked to leave him stranded in the remote Slavic village for the night. Whenever you're ready. Hermione inhales a sharp breath through her nostrils, her eyes flicking around the office as if it's the last time she'll ever see it. Then she turns to Dean and throws her arms around him, pulling him into a hug. Dean pauses for a moment in surprise, and then returns it with a light squeeze. They weren't usually affectionate, but the idea of leaving has given Hermione a premature feeling of homesickness. Find him for us, yeah? Dean says into her ear, his warm breath fanning out across her hair. She nods into his shoulder, releasing him and giving him a goodbye squeeze on the shoulder. She'll see him again when he drops off supplies in two weeks, but it still feels like goodbye. Draco is watching her, when he turns to him, his velvet bag open and waiting. After you, Granger. Hermione gives Madge a final glance, tugging open the strings of her bag and, without looking inside, dumps the object unceremoniously into her palm. A tug at her navel, the lurch of her stomach. Hermione closes her eyes and lets the port key take her. Her trunk has already been placed at the end of her bed in the second room upstairs. Other than that, the room is empty, save for a small bedside table, an old writing desk and chair pushed against the window. The window must face north because buttery afternoon light streams through the dirt street glass, falling onto the floor in golden pathways across the wood. Everything in this house is dated, original floors and walls, she thinks, peeling wallpaper included, and stairs that creak, leaving nothing to the imagination when one walks up or down them. There is a fine layer of dust on almost every surface, and Hermione cleans it off with a flick of her wand as she enters each corner and room. Dean must have cleaned this room for her, though, because it's already in much better shape than the others had been. She can hear Draco down the hall in his own room, taking things out of his trunk, his feet scraping against the floor as he moves. Silencing charms would be a must, she thinks, if they were to avoid hearing the other person every time someone got out of bed to use the washroom. When the porky had dropped her, rather violently, she might add, in the ward boundaries outside of the house, the first thing she had noticed was how quiet everything was. Over the past few years, she has grown so accustomed to living in London, to the unfailingly packed streets of Diagon Alley, standing elbow to elbow on the tube on her way to visit her parents in their new home in South Kensington, to the crowds and parks and the weekends, 
more picnic blankets than grass some days. Loud, always so loud. It is not loud here. The forest is dense around the clearing, thick with skinny trunks of trees and green foliage that stretches up high above her head, moss carpeting the bark and the ground below. Green everywhere, as far as the eye can see. The only thing she's heard after she's collected herself from the abrupt landing, breathing in deeply to soothe the nauseating swirl of her stomach, were the sounds of birds, singing as if in a fairy tale, and then the sound of Malfoy landing beside her with a muffled thump into the soft ground. The house itself is small, but larger than the two of them alone would ever need. Plastic white, siding stained shades of green and brown from weathering. Half-dead ivy crawling up one side towards the tiled roof. A covered front porch, the wood dilapidated and slick from an earlier rain. A hole in one of the steps. A screen door, the mesh ripped and curling backwards, hanging slightly open from the latch. Charming, Malfoy had stated, wiping a leaf off of his trousers. As if in reply to his comment, they had both flinched instinctively to the rustling sound of an animal under the front porch, scampering away, shifting dead leaves as it ran. Hermione, not bothering to look at Malfoy, had returned the port key, a plain blonde's ring, much too big to ever fit her finger and its pouch, and started towards the front door, avoiding the broken step on her way up. The air inside was a stale, dusty smell, with a light smell of decay, but not unbearable. The first thing she'd done was crack open a few windows, letting the fresh spring breeze blow past the moth-eaten curtains and into the house. It only took her a few minutes to look around the main floor. A small kitchen, a sitting room with a fireplace, a bathroom and a study down the short corridor. Despite how loud the stairs were, she had been too distracted looking around to notice that Malfoy had gone up, startling of her upon his return. She had raised a hand to look at her fast-beating heart, giving him a disapproving look. Boo, he had deadpanned, raising an eyebrow as he gazed around the room. There's only one loo, and it's down here. She had nodded, swallowing a lump in her throat. One bathroom to share between the two of them. She poked her head inside, eyeing the sink, toilet and shower, orange-yellow streaks on the bottom of the shallow tub. She'd focus on cleaning that later, she decided, moving to look at the study, which had bookshelves lining each wall and a desk for her and Malfoy each. Her favourite discovery had been the window seat in the sitting room, also north-facing, the sun already warming the dingy mildew-stained cushion there. She imagines curling up there on the weekend, letting the sun heat her skin and lull her off to sleep as she reads a good book. She has to shake her head to remind herself what she is really here for. Dean had already stocked the kitchen for them, as well as an entire cupboard with potions and medical supplies above the sink. A small wooden table with two chairs sat in the middle of the kitchen, and you could see the front porch through the window if you sat down at it. Her bedroom had been the last stop on her exploration, and now she considers the cotton sheets dressed nicely on the bed, wishing she could sink into them and take a nap. It is late afternoon, and her lack of sleep last night seems to finally be catching up to her. Would you like to open this? She jumps again, spinning around to face Malfoy in the doorway. He hovers outside of the threshold, holding the box Madge had handed him before their departure. He raises an expectant eyebrow as Hermione frowns at him. This house is a million years old, 
and it just creaks when the breeze hits it. And somehow you've managed to scare me twice now. She frowns down at his shoes, wondering if he's purposely put a silencing charm on them so he can sneak around and frighten her. I don't clomp around like a hippogriff, Granger. You drag your feet when you walk, like a troll or something. Thus, more noise. She lifts her eyes to him, her frown unwavering. He's wearing his permanent scowl, the one she's most used to when interacting with him. And if he hadn't been the one to just call her a troll... Pratt. I do not drag my feet, she hisses, turning to pop open her trunk. She can feel his eyes on her with his back turned, and she'd like to tell him that not everyone takes lessons on how to walk properly when they're four years old. You still haven't answered my question, he grates, his voice growling impatiently. She huffs, shutting her trunk again and turning to walk past him out of the room. Fine, she says, not bothering to look back to see if he's following. She will not invite him into her room, and she doubts he would follow her in there anyway. It's the only space in the house that she can call her own, that would remain untainted by him, and she would prefer to keep it that way. When she reaches the kitchen, she stops and turns around, Malfoy behind her and watching her with a look of annoyance. Clearly, he wasn't a fan of having to follow her at will, because he looks as if he's just smelled something terrible. Go on, then, she nods, leaning back against the kitchen counter. She accidentally leans into a wet spot beside the sink and cold water soaks through the back of her shirt, sending goose pimples over her skin. She makes a sound of disapproval, moving slightly down the counter to a drier spot. Malfoy tugs open the twine and pulls a large bottle of something amber out of the box. Whiskey? she asks, studying the bottle as Malfoy inspects the label. She's not surprised Madge gave them alcohol, as he was known for appreciating a stiff glass when he got home at the end of each day. Some sort of brandy, he says, placing the bottle down on the table instead of passing it to her. Looks fancy. He's right. It's an old, expensive bottle of brandy, and she can't tell from looking at it whether or not it's muggle. She opens one of the cupboards behind her and places it on an empty shelf, centres it like a trophy trying to imagine a circumstance where she and Malfoy could sit down amicably and enjoy a glass together. We'll save it for a special occasion, she says, shutting the cupboard with another creak. She wishes she had a spare day to sit around and fix the place up a bit. Everything was in working order, but the entire house seemed to complain of their presence, as if it had been content to sit around unused and was now protesting to the two of them moving in. You know, Granger... She turns around to face him again, taking him in against their new backdrop. Compared to the withered look of the house, Malfoy is a shiny new sickle. Pressed trousers, starched shirt, signet ring gleaming off of the light streaming in from the window. Sharp, sturdy angles of his jaw, chin, his body tall and willowy, lean muscles straining against the fabric of his clothes. He looks like he belongs in a manor. And he does. He doesn't belong here, in this dusty old house with its fading wallpaper and its water-stained ceilings. I'm surprised you're doing this. You're surprised I'm going off to find my missing best friend? He leans forward, palms resting on the back of one of the chairs, his grey eyes challenging, steadfast on her. No, that much is predictable. You Gryffindors always have been. She glares at him. I'm talking about you lying to the Ministry about what we're doing. 
to your friends. Although I'm guessing you told the two youngest Weasleys since Potter used to be their communal boyfriend. Am I right? Hermione takes a step forward, the knob of the second chair digging into her stomach. I'm not lying to the Ministry, she bites, gripping the back of the chair. If anything, it was an omission of the truth. She told them she was going to Europe to investigate and write a story, but she'd kept it at that. You are, he insists, running his tongue along the back of his teeth as he glowers at her. A little white lies still count as lies, Granger. What are you going to do if all this goes tits up, huh? If Madge gets in trouble because you insisted on keeping this a secret, did you ever stop to consider how this little scavenger hunt might affect other people? Her breath catches in her throat. What? You've never told a fib before, Malfoy. A low, dark laugh comes out in a sharp breath from his parted lips, and he snakes his head at her. I never said that. But for someone who goes through such great lengths to insist upon their own righteousness, you sure are crossing a lot of lines. He shakes his head. Righteousness! This comes out on a breathy laugh, a bit higher and louder than she'd intended. Malfoy flinches as if she's a banshee squawking directly into his ear. You, of all people, have no right to comment on my character, Malfoy. His lip curls upwards in a sneer and he pushes away from the chair, turning away from her and stalking off. She follows, her neck hot and itching with anger. He was the one who'd started this bloody fight, and Hermione would not let him be the one to end it by walking away. What are you trying to say, Granger? He turns abruptly in the space between the kitchen and the sitting room, causing her to stumble to a stop to avoid smacking into him. His eyes are bright, dangerously expressive, his fury conveyed solely through them. The rest of his face is relaxed, sober. Go on, princess. Tell me exactly what you think of me. I think that you believe I'm a goody-two-shoes who doesn't think that she can do anything wrong, and that I don't like you because you used to play Death Eater with Voldemort. The truth is, Malfoy, I don't like you because you're self-assured and cold, and you do everything in your power to make my life harder. If what I'm doing is so wrong, why did you take this case, huh? Why be stuck with me here when you could be back in the office writing stories for the Howler and safe in your own bed? His nostrils flare on an inhale as he looks down at her, fists at his side. As if I had a choice, he spits, tongue poking his cheek. Should I have told Madge to fuck off? No, I won't, because Granger is a bossy know-it-all, and I'd rather chew off my own foot than follow her around Central Europe. Madge is the first person I've met who has treated me fairly without question. He gave me a chance when no one else would, and he never once looked at me as if I was destructive trash left over from the war. I'm not going to throw that away because we don't get along, Granger. I did what I had to do. She nods, her chest rising and falling with her breath as she tries to calm herself. He could escalate her so quickly, and she let him. And she could do the same to him, as if they were stuck together. They were going to have to learn to control it. Exactly, Malfoy. We do what we have to. I have to find Harry. I accept the risks I'll need to take to get me there. So did Madge, and so did you. I won't let anyone get hurt, but I need to find my friend. Malfoy looks at her, thoughtful and slightly pink with vexation. He opens his mouth and snaps it closed again, jaw working.
Fine, Granger, but I'm here to write, not to follow you around like a dog. So we keep communication open, yeah? If I wake up and find you're gone potter hunting without me, Madge is the first to know. She swallows. Fine. He nods, not taking another moment to wait before shouldering past her and up the stairs. The heat of his body, that's all that's left of him. She hadn't remembered how eerie it is to sleep in the woods at night. Even with four sturdy walls around her, she can hear the wind whip through the trees, the haunting call of nightbirds, the noise of small animals trampling over detritus. The moon streams through the crack in her curtains, offering a silver of light into the unfamiliar room. It's not home. She moves her feet under the covers, noticing how light they are without Crookshanks there to claim his bed on top of them. She places an extra pillow there, where he would be, and falls asleep. Mm-hmm.